Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Good morning and welcome to the foggy edition of Talkback Gardening. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Yes, at least the fog will clear and we'll have a lovely good gardening day, I would like to think. Oh, let's hope so. The sun peaks out and then it disappears and we're all fogged in as we get going again this morning. Could be a bit of a rush for secateurs with all the questions coming in on pruning and pruning roses in particular. But our main discussion involves organic gardening. A mini masterclass on organic gardening is coming our way and class master will be Tim Marshall, wonderful organic gardening authority, author of so many gardening books on organics and look forward to that very shortly. Absolutely. So if you have a question about organic gardening, perhaps you're just getting started or you're an established organic gardener and you'd like to get Tim's advice, call in now on 1300 222 891. We'll get to as many questions as we can while we have Tim with us and we'll get back to general talkback gardening calls a little bit later. We'll also speak to Trevor Garrett on orchids because there is an orchid uh, show that's happening today and we'll find out how you can keep your orchids looking blooming beautiful as well. You can text your comments through to us on 0467 getting lots of beautiful pictures of the fog or the clear skies depending on where you are in our beautiful city and state at the moment. And later in the program I'll have the latest ABC Organic Gardener magazine to give away. It's nice to know how many gardeners have re- discovered gardening or potential gardeners have discovered gardening and probably because of the COVID restrictions but there's confusion out there people are advised oh look if you're going to go gardening you've got to be an organic gardener and then others are saying no 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 you can be a traditional gardener what's the difference between an organic gardener and a traditional gardener and in particular, what happens to the garden itself. Tim Marshall is a wonderful authority on all things organic, written so many books on organic gardening, and it's time to say good morning to you, Tim Marshall. Good morning, John, Deb, and everyone else. We would have liked to have had you here in the studio, but I'm afraid uh, you're still in Queensland because of COVID restrictions. Regardless, can we start by taking a look at the difference between organic gardening and traditional gardening? Well, there will be many similarities uh, because until uh, relatively recently, um, really gardeners only had organic techniques available to them. But the way I understand organic, it does operate to a set of um, rules or guidelines. And I guess traditional gardening could be uh, a sort of do-nothing approach, whereas I think of organic as uh, as actively engaging in some of those guidelines to steer the, the, the health and um, uh, production of the garden. All right, so being an organic gardener presumably is more than just using organic fertilisers and organic insecticides and fungicides and weedicides and products like that. Yes, it it definitely is. It's actively thinking about the health of your garden. In fact, uh, I guess for me, as as a practising organic gardener, uh, uh, inputs are well, well down the, uh, the, the consideration. I start with 
basic what horticulturists would call cultural practices. In other words, thinking about what does your plant really need to grow and how can I provide that? Uh, and and if I can do that well, then uh, apart from perhaps a, uh, some very basic fertilisers, I shouldn't need to use inputs very often at all. Well, let's take a look at that, and, and, and not in technical detail, because uh, to start with, we're talking to new gardeners who are probably unfamiliar with some of the gardening terms that you and I might use and other gardeners might use. So let's uh, start with, say, something like compost. You've always taught me, John, the thing to do is start with compost. Compost is the thing that drives the organic gardening program. So what is compost? And could you then explain uh, briefly just how the compost improves the soil and presumably the plants? Well, the, the uh, a basic aim for organic gardeners is to improve um, organic matter or the organic condition of the soil. And if we can do that, it will improve virtually every soil regardless of its characteristics and uh, the the wonderful thing about uh, compost is it's a tool that we can use to improve organic uh, matter in the soil to improve the, the chemistry of the soil the physical structure of the soil and the biology of the soil in a single operation and we can do it with uh, virtually no chance of doing harm when we put in a, one of those stronger organic fertilisers or those sorts of things, we can overuse those products. We can potentially misuse those products, but with compost, almost impossible to do that. Well, soil has got structure and it's also got uh, nutrients in it. How does compost improve soil structure? Uh, well, it, uh, basically, in, it will bind soil particles t t uh, together which uh, which has the effect of creating pore holes or uh, between those particles, and it's in those pore holes that we find the uh, uh, the the, uh, uh, the oxygen and the nitrogen that plants really need, and that uh, that can be converted uh, um, into useful forms for that plant. We find that in those pores lives the biology, the bacteria, for instance, that will convert atmospheric nitrogen into plant nitrogen and in those pores we have the capacity to hold water for plants but also to drain water away so that plants are not sitting in wet conditions. Right. So, so ideally we're, 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 we're actually manipulating all of those things when we add organic matter and especially when we add compost. When you add compost, right. So there's the compost, it's chunky materials. How does it magically change from being chunky materials that you put in the soil into things which uh, will improve the structure of the soil and also provide the, the, the nutrients and, and the plant foods that the plants need? Uh, well, basically, it's going to become the food for the soil organisms uh -huh. that are largely going to do that for us. Now, you can't get far down the track before saying, what's a soil organism? Yeah. Oh, it's a, a huge variety of different things. Uh, in in that category, we're going to include everything from you know the the, the valuable earthworm right down to the uh, the, the bacteria, etc. That are really transforming and uh, making available the nutrients that are in the compost into the form of nutrients that 
plants really need and prefer to take up. All right, so these little microbes, they are actually feeding on the compost and converting it. Yes, yes. Okay. So compost is a perfect food for all the many, many different types of organisms that naturally live in your soil. Right. So we need to then just briefly look at uh, uh, the plant, uh, uh, the, the nutrients and things like that. So apart from uh, uh, amending the structure, so you've got more air and more drainage there, the little microbes are also converting the compost into, uh, into presumably fertilisers and, and things like that for the plant. Yes, well, uh, uh, plants need a, a, the full range of um, uh, uh, nutrients. We know that there's a, at, at, uh, these days we count more than 20, probably 30 uh, nutrients that are absolutely essential for, for plants. When we add a, a concentrated fertiliser product, we're probably only adding a few of those. And when we add compost, we should be supplying the full range of everything that, that plants need and in a form uh, that will readily be converted to uh, to the, the way plants like to, to, to eat that stuff, if we can say it that way. Well, I'd yeah. like to be able to drill down into the relationship then between soil health and plant health. But uh, questions, Deb, have we got people... No, we haven't yet, but if a... you'd like a question, <laughs> you better joking? ring in now for Tim Marshall. If you've got an organic gardening question, the number is one three hundred triple two eight nine one. 899 Although I must say, Anne from Balaclava challenges your definition of traditional gardening and organic gardening and said organic gardening is traditional gardening. Um, it should be described as organic gardening versus versus gardening involving chemicals. I would accept that, very much so. I can remember Dr Albert Rivera many, many years ago and farmers were having this argument versus organic farming versus, uh, uh, well, what I term traditional farming. And, and, and Dr Albert Rivera was the person who said, John, listen, most farmers are organic farmers anyway. It's just that there are chemicals available of, uh, to them which will short-circuit the system, I suppose, and allow them to do things which uh, the organic does slowly you, you can speed it up but in speeding it up it can have a detrimental effect tim just while we're waiting for a question or two to come in it's trendy to be organic at the moment and are many of the companies that sell garden products now put organic on their label the fact that it's got organic on the label doesn't necessarily mean it's organic uh, in terms of the true terms of organics uh, unfortunately, when it comes to fertiliser products, the word organic has uh, a long-established and distinct meaning, which is not the same as we know by certified organic. So, uh, you know, in uh, when we add um, uh, uh, fertilisers to the garden, they might come from crushed rocks, say, that contain uh, um, uh, phosphorus and other um, uh, nutrients. We call those mineral fertilisers because all life forms re, uh, require carbon, the term we use for uh, containing carbon is actually organic. So um, strictly speaking, an organic a mineral fertiliser might well be uh, allowable in certified organic production, whereas an, an organic fertiliser might not be permitted. So then we need to look for the, the guarantee that we have the right product, which is the certification label. Tim Marshall is our special guest. He is uh, an incredible expert on organic gardening. If you have an organic gardening question for Tim, please call now on 1300 222 891. We'll come to your questions in just a moment. 
Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Our special guest is Tim Marshall, organic expert, and he is going to answer any of your questions you may have, but get on the blower very quickly if you want to grab him on 1300 891. First caller is Ali in Adelaide about compost. Welcome, Ali. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my question is, Tim, in regards to I, I just can't seem to succeed with composting. Um, every time that I put the stuff in there trying to recycle what I have, but it just goes dry and never turns to a compost. So I just, uh, I'm hoping that he can kind of give me some tips in how I can really turn my waste into compost. Mm. Uh, so the first, I have a question for you. Are you using a bin or an open heap? No, it's a bin. It's one of those square ones that's got a lid. So yeah, plastic ones from Bunnings. Okay, so a bin should be reasonably self-sufficient if you are using mainly garden scraps. If you're putting into that bin, uh, you say uh, mulch or prunings or things from the garden, then you may need to um, put water into there. The, the vegetable scraps that come from the kitchen generally have adequate water, and if you keep the lid on, that's usually enough. But to the greater extent that you're using other inputs from the garden, then you may need to use water. If you find that the, the, the material is going at all slimy or smelly, then it may be useful uh, about every, say, 20, 30 centimetres as you build material up to put a good solid handful of garden lime into that, and that will help. Apart from that, the bin itself should be fairly self-managing. I think that, that kind of, yeah, that it did go slimy. And then um, the other question is in regards to that, can we put grass in there? Oh, yes. Uh, grass clippings are a very good ingredient for, uh, for compost bins. Um, okay. Don't put a very large uh, layer without mixing it with other materials. And look, a very good material to mix with that is simply... Uh, newspaper, and if you find that if you hold up a you know a good eight or ten thicknesses of newspaper, you can actually rip it into shreds really very easily in one direction. You might not work in the other direction. You've got to go with the grain of the paper, and that makes a very good material to mix with uh, grass clippings and coffee, coffee, oh, coffee, um, coffee very, beans. Very, yes, that's a very uh, very good. Uh, Product. So actually tea, tea leaves, spent tea leaves and spent yep. compost grounds are both exceptionally good uh, food for worms and for, um, for the, those bins. You might like to actually get a handful of compost worms and put them into that bin. As long as you're opening the bin fairly often and getting oxygen in there, the worms will survive quite happily inside the bin and they will accelerate the process of producing compost for you. Great question. Thank you very much for that. And Nerida is in Victor Harbour. Now, you have a question about tomatoes. Yes, I do. Yes. Um, I have a small veggie garden and I've been told that I have tried to grow veggies repeatedly in the same place and I've known that you have to move it around. But with tomatoes particularly, if you don't move it around... Nerida, we've just lost you. Um, it was about moving around tomatoes, I think, moving around plots. Tim, what's the organic approach to 
to moving your tomatoes or moving your other vegetables around the garden? Generally speaking, you should try to rotate uh, vegetables according to the family that they belong to. So in other words, you have to understand that tomatoes you know, belong to the same family as capsicums and eggplants, and it's not a good idea to grow them in the same place continuously. Some books suggest that you have to actually change them every year, and as long as the plant is healthy, you probably don't have to change the location every year, but every couple of years, perhaps, you need to spell that soil so that you are not building up the particular pathogens or disease organisms or pests that that really favour that particular type of plant. So just go to something else in that location, and if you have a limited location, then maybe you can try growing tomatoes in you know every third year or something or fourth year in in a pot because I've got a pot well in a pot. I hope you heard that, Nerida. I hope your radio is working if your phone isn't. Uh, Matt is in Millswood. Now, Matt, you're back to compost again. Yeah, look, I've just uh, recently purchased a property um, that has some established citrus trees out the back, Um, but they've sort of been taken over by agapanthers. So I'm trying to remove all the agapanthers and roots from around the tree and uh, without damaging the roots of the citrus trees and then trying to revitalise the soil with some compost or... Um, some sort of topsoil so I'm not really sure what the best approach is what to mix into the ground and how far I need to go without trying to damage the roots Ah, well compost is very definitely uh, a suitable product and probably the best product that you can use and a good thing about compost is that you don't have to dig it in you can put it on the soil surface and earthworms and other organisms they will bury it for you as part of their normal activity I would suggest, though, that when you're using a valuable product like compost, you try and cover that against the worst ravages of the sun and wind and rain with something perhaps less valuable like straw or other organic materials. Now, under the deep canopy of an orange tree, that might not be so important, but if your compost is exposed to the the full sun, then it will become dry and it will lose some of its qualities. So uh, clear clear away the agapanthus or other weeds. Uh, go as shallow as possible because uh, the roots of the, of the citrus tree are quite close to the surface. Then um, add your compost and for the best effect, cover your compost with another sort of mulch to protect it. Okay, Matt. I'm, I'm- yeah, I'm just one more question if that's okay. I'm just finding that the agapanthus roots are actually wrapping around the tree in some parts. If I cut it off where the actual um, greenery of the agapanther is and just leave those roots in the ground, will they sort of die off and, and turn into compost themselves or should I try and get them all out? No, yes, they will. You, but you must take away all the green bits and quite frankly, you can just slice them off. Uh, Use a, a sharp spade or you know an, even an old kitchen knife that you don't need anymore, and make sure you slice them. Just but you, you'll see a little area that's sort of probably a little thickening where you go from the green of the tops to the brown of the roots, and you need to get just underneath that. Good luck with that job, Matt. Vicky is in Murray Bridge, and we're staying on the theme of compost. Hi, Vicky. Oh, hello, Deb. Hello, Tim. Um, how do I know that um, my compost that I make is of good quality? 
or does it not matter? We have open bays. Um, they're turned from one bay to the next. I use uh, vegetable scraps, long clippings, um, cow, if, cow manure. If, if you use compost only on the soil surface, the point of maturity, which we talk about, is not so critical. If you're going to actually dig in compost and put it in or use it in pots and put it in very close association with the roots of a plant, then you do want that compost to be finished or mature um, so that uh, that way it won't do any harm whatsoever to those delicate roots. Now, um, there are many ways to assess how good a compost is. One of the best ways is actually to handle the compost and to smell it. Your nose is actually very good as a measuring device for all sorts of gardening activities. So when you look at the compost, it should be dark in colour. It should be what we call homogenous. In other words, it should all look fairly much the same. You shouldn't be able to see the remains of the banana skin or the apple peel or whatever that went into it. And when you put it to your nose, it should smell either slightly sweet or for many people really not much smell at all. You should certainly not have any off smells or any you know, nitrogenous smells that hurt your nose at all. And your nose is actually a very, very good tool. I would trust your nose. There you go, Vicky. Uh, give some trust to your nose. And we're staying on compost with Brendan from Flagstaff Hill. Yeah, good day. Um, following up from Matt's question on the fruit trees, I have some grow rings. Is it better to put the compost inside or outside those rings? Uh well, I think I understand what you mean by a grow ring. And it, look, it doesn't really matter. But inside the grow ring is probably going to be where you're getting a lot of feeding. So you definitely want to put it inside there. Um, yeah. the, if if, if the, the compost or other organic matter that you're putting into that grow ring is likely to get over wet or hold moisture, just pull it just a couple of centimetres back from the stem itself so that you, yep. you're not making that area very wet. But inside the ground, yeah, it's absolutely fine. Tim, before we move on to other questions, compost in containers. There I many people have container gardening. Can you add compost to containers? Oh, yes. Now, so I, I like to... Um, usually, I think the, the commercial... Uh, Potting materials that I buy and use, I can add a little bit more compost to them before I put it in the pot. But you can always top up a pot with a bit of compost. You'll actually find that potting materials do sink a bit over time and you can just put the compost straight on the soil surface. If you're not going to do, uh, if you think you're not going to do much harm to roots, you can maybe use something like an old pencil or a, a chopstick or something and just, you know, make tiny little holes and let, drill it, let it dribble down into the soil. But again, if you have um, any earthworms or other sorts of soil organisms there, they will slowly pull that compost down into the pot and it will get washed down with uh, irrigation or flushing. And the same rule applies it's best if you actually put another mulch on top of the compost 
to protect the compost. We have got Tim Marshall, our organic expert. Only for a few minutes more, we'll take two more calls and it seems that compost is the theme of the day, Tim. Barbara from Belair, you've got some slaters in yours? Yes, that's the problem. Um, Hello to Tim and Deb. Um, Look, um, I've just emptied a compost bin and the compost was full of slaters. Is that a good thing and does it matter? In the compost and, in fact, even in the garden, slaters are entirely good animals. They don't do nearly as much harm as people think they do. They can be confused with another organism that looks similar called a pill bug. Pill bugs are more destructive. So you can tell the difference in this way. If you, you know, poke a slater with, the, with your finger, it'll run away. If you poke a slater with your finger, it'll roll into a ball, which is why it's called a pill bug. It looks like a little black pill. They look fairly similar to the naked eye, but that test will tell you which one you have. Slaters themselves are part of the natural detritus system, the natural breaking down of organic matter. Even when people find them inside their capsicum, sometimes they haven't actually caused that problem anyway. Something else made a little hole in the capsicum and the slater ran in. So unless you have really, really large numbers of slaters and you know that they are causing your problem, I would say leave them alone. Thanks, Barbara. I've got lots of slaters as well, Tim Marshall. Last question to Tim comes from Michael at Ranella East on compost. Michael, fire away. Oh, good morning, Deb, John and Tim. Yeah, look, I was just wondering, when you were starting up a new gardening plot or wanting to refresh a garden plot, what percentage of compost could you add to the the total mass with your garden soils? Usually the answer to that is that uh, your wallet will be the control of how much compost you're going to put on. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Too large bins of it. Yeah, you can supply a great deal of compost. Where, you know, you, you, uh, if you've got a totally new bed that hasn't been used for, ga- for for this sort of intensive vegetable gardening before, you know, you could put on six or eight or ten centimetres of compost. In that situation, I would dig some of it in, okay? Oh, but, you know, definitely. It, I'm thinking, sorry. Yeah. Well, after that, you don't need to dig as often as you think you probably might, but certainly starting a new garden. Now, making a potting soil, for instance, something like that, just as a rule there, you know, 20% of compost would be absolutely fine. More than 30% is probably not necessary, okay? But it's not as if you're doing a lot of harm, but you're just in that range of 20 to 30%, and otherwise uh, you just simply won't need more than that. Thanks, Michael, and thank you for all your questions. John, you want to have a quick word with Tim before he has to disappear? I've been told that Tim is probably the best compost maker in Australia. He's written a number of books. There's a wonderful book called Composting, The Ultimate Guide, and then there's another book on just called Recycling Your Garden. Are they still available, Tim? Yes, they are available. They're not as common in shops as they were. But if you ask, especially an ABC uh, 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 shop, 
to get it for you. They will, and you can find them online. Okay, and the other one we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Tim Marshall's New Organic Gardener, 350 pages worth of it. Um, that's uh, still available every now and then. Tim, uh, I wanted to drill down, but time's going to beat us from going too deep. But could we just, on one issue, I suppose, uh, take a look at uh, um, the fact that you can go organically to improve soil health and if you improve the soil health it improves soil uh, it, it it improves plant growth just very very quickly some of the things that improve soil health uh, the seaweed products we've had for some time uh, then there's fish and then there's liquid compost could you just briefly comment about uh, the value of of seaweed fish uh, or liquid composts um, in terms of soil health Okay, so uh, seaweed, again, is one of those products that's very safe to use. It's pretty hard to overuse this product. It does contain a full range of uh, nutrients because the ocean contains a full range of nutrients. Um, it, it's not a high-nutrient product, but it's, so it's safe to use it uh, quite often. And it also contains plant-protective organisms, which we don't have uh, the time to explain but um, um, because they are plant protective, it's a very good product to actually put on the leaves as well as on the soil. Not too strong. You never want to use this product uh, stronger than, um, say, weak tea. And if you use it quite weak, then you can use it, you know, on every second or third watering that you do on your on your garden. Lots of the new products are coming out now with fish in it. Is there much difference or how does fish differ from seaweed in its action? So again, fish generally has a broad range of nutrients and many fish products are higher in nitrogen than other organic products. So sometimes when we want uh, those sorts of uh, products, they, they are um, they're useful to provide a bit of nitrogen. And look, both of those products, seaweed and fish, also operate as plant stimulants. So it's not just the nutrients that we're looking for, but it's another beneficial effects that they have on the plant itself and on those vital soil organisms that are doing a lot of the work for us in we've, the organic. We've plant. had some very good information on compost, but you can now go and buy a bottle that contains liquid compost. Is it fair dinkum or is it um, up with the fairies? No, they're very, very good liquid compost products, and many of us, myself included, are home gardeners who make compost we liquefy that compost by ver uh, that by various different methods which are explained well in my book but um and, and it's a very good way of spreading a small amount of compost across the garden if you don't have enough compost uh, and you don't know where and how to use it then actually liquefying the compost is a really good way to apply that to the garden many gardeners no longer have room to make compost but you can buy all of these organic products in little bottles and, and, and packets and things like that. Uh, uh, is it possible to say you can go organic uh, buying products rather than actually doing it yourself at home? Yes, if you're careful and you pay attention to the products you're buying, and especially if you look for that certification label, there are now very, very good products uh, that, that you can buy in stores that allow you to, to, uh, to be organic. 
And just very, very quickly, you actually run uh, classes uh, uh, mainly for farmers and horticulturalists and things like that on organic gardening. Uh, not organic gardening, but organic farming. Yes. Uh, the next one's coming up in August in uh, the McLaren Vale area, specifically for uh, grape growers, but it would be useful for others. So anyone in that area, your local grape growers association or the, 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 the composters within the region, within that area, they'll tell you about those classes. Tim Marshall, so wonderful to have you on the program, and I'm just amazed at how quickly that uh, clock second hand and the minute hand goes around and uh, we've passed our use by date and uh, I need to say thank you very much once again Tim Marshall look forward again sometime in the future very soon in the future to talk again thank you Thanks, Tim. Yeah, we look forward to having you back here in South Australia. We are coming back into your Talk Back Gardening calls in a moment. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Let's move to the hills now. Cheryl, you've got some mushrooms in your garden. I do. Um, we have a lot of pine trees and there are what I think are pine mushrooms growing beneath them but we're not prepared to eat them unless we can get them identified. And we're wondering, is there anywhere in Adelaide that we can take them to get an identification on them? Very, very difficult, and I'm certainly uh, very loath to make any comment on whether mushrooms and toadstools are edible simply because of the danger there. I think your best bet is to ring the museum. They have some wonderful people there to do a lot of research and uh, there's a lady in particular that is uh, a wonderful authority, uh, world authority on, on mushrooms. Um, I think if you ring uh, the, the museum, talk to the communication officer there and uh, that person probably can give you at least the best information that is available. That's right, Cheryl. You have to be very, very careful when it comes to mushrooms. I always say, John, if you're going to eat mushrooms that aren't identified Identified, save one for the coroner. Oh, can I think of it? Look, a couple of years ago, um, I, I was able to access from the, uh, the, the museum a wonderful chart of how to identify different mushrooms. And it is brilliant. And we printed it in the newsletter a couple of years ago. Could I suggest that next week's newsletter, we will put in a link if it's still available, to that lovely... Uh, it, it, it's got about 20 different kind of mushroom photos and toadstool photos, and it's just very good background for those that might be interested in that one. So that's next week in the Good Garden. Well, wonderful, newsletter. but do be very, very careful, please. Mike is in Forestville. Yeah. You've got a bit of a battle going on, have you, Mike? Yes. Hi, John and Deb. Um, about 25 years ago, we planted City of Adelaide roses um, on our western boundary at the front of the house. Uh, around about 10 years ago, the council planted these lovely jacaranda trees, which we do don't like on the street. However, it's provided a lot of shade. We used to have lots and lots and lots of flowers, and now we don't have as many. Of the 12 or so plants, seven have really struggled, and one didn't shoot at all last year, so I've, I need to do something, like replace some or all of them. Is there a type of rose that will grow okay in a shadier area, so not as many hours of sunlight? Traditionally, trees and roses are not very compatible simply because the roots of a rose don't compete very effectively against most of the trees that we have. There are new types of roses coming onto the market and they are basically referred to as landscape roses, landscape roses. And what I would suggest is uh, 
you go on to uh, the web and look at some of the uh, breeders of roses and uh, they supply the garden centres. Uh, but there's one, Knight's, I know, Knight's Roses have got uh, a number of new uh, landscape roses and also Wagner's is another one and probably a third one is Trelaw's. Now, there are probably other... Oh, and uh, of course, uh, you've got uh, um, Ross Roses. So there are a number of rose breeders and developers and they are introducing these new uh, uh, landscapey roses, much tougher, much hardier, just flower the little heads off. And I would suspect that many of those have got better uh, abilities to be able to withstand competition from tree roots. Good luck on that quest, Mike. And staying on the theme of roses, Neil is in Narracourt. Good morning, Neil. Oh, hello, Deb. Hello, John. I'm looking after a, a garden down near Panola, and it's got a lot of standard roses in it, and they're bent over sideways because of the prevailing winds. And I think the only way I can stand them up is to hammer in a dropper next to the trunk. But I'm just concerned about doing damage to the roots. So the whole plant has basically sort of been pushed over so that uh, it's on a, on a lean, a permanent lean uh, against the wind. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, John. Yes. Right, uh, well, I think that uh, you could sort of stick them back up again and they'll get blown over um, unless you can put in some kind of a wind barrier. Not a wall, you need something that where the wind can actually move through, like a trellis, it can move through. Uh, if you have a, a permanent wall, you get a buffeting effect and that can be more damaging than uh, just the straight wind itself. So something to reduce the velocity of the wind would help. And then if you did that, uh, certainly your suggestion of using stakes to sort of put them back up uh, uh, so that they are the vertical. Uh, and so... This winter, if you haven't already pruned, if you pruned them fairly hard, that would put you off in a good position to be able to retrain them up against your stakes. Okay. Would a stake next to the trunk cause a lot of root damage, do you think? Oh, no, no. I mean, you've got uh, 360 degrees of uh, soil uh, where you'll have roots, so even if you put a, a stake through one of the roots, there'll still be plenty of others there. Thanks very much, Neil. And we said today that, unfortunately, the South Australian Orchidaceous Society Winter Show planned for today and tomorrow at the Clemson Community Centre has been cancelled. But the good news is that the Orchid Club of South Australia's Winter Show is on today, one day only, at the Enfield Community Centre, which is 540 Regency Road, Enfield. And Trevor Garrard is communications officer for the South Australian Orchid Club. Uh, Trevor... Congratulations, at least you made it and got your show up and running. What's it look like at the moment? It's quite nice, John. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, there's about 60-odd plants on display. There's uh, traders that will be selling plants, and it looks an absolute treat for a winter show. So let's take a look at somebody uh, says, oh, I love orchids, particularly cymbidium orchids. Uh, I would like to buy a nice cymbidium orchid. They go to the show... Could you give us a few little hints on buying that first orchid? Uh, well, most people do uh, go by colour first up. Uh, they don't worry about the shape. The judges worry about the shape of the flower. But a lot of people go for colour, uh, the number of flowers on the spike, and, of course, uh, the cost comes into it at some stage. And uh, there's uh, lots of cymbidiums on sale because it's into their season now, plus lots of other plants uh, from 
uh, other traders. And there's also some uh, native terrestrial plants. You, know, you won't see them on sale very often in uh, South Australia to the public. Uh, they're worth grabbing now if you can. And uh, there's some great uh, champion plants here. The uh, grand champion was uh, Dendrobium hybrid, Astanova snowflake. And there's a rarely seen species on show as well. It's an Epidendrum Nalanopophyrum. And uh, you won't see them. It's the first one I've ever seen in 20-odd years of growing. So there's lots of things down here to see. So apart from uh, cymbidiums and probably a, a moth orchid or two and a dendrobium or two, there's a, a wide selection. You don't have to sort of buy a cymbidium. There's just a, a wonderful menu of, of colour there to choose from. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, uh, as far as colour goes, it's uh, the whole gamut. <laughs> just very, very <laughs> quickly. So you've, black. you've bought your orchid and you take it home. Uh, just a, a quick uh, comment or two on, on location, getting the location right and why that's important. Uh, if you've got a cymbidium, let's assume the person bought a cymbidium, you take it home 50% shade most of the year. Uh, right now you can put it outside in uh, full light because uh, the fo- they'd love this fog. And uh, during summer, late spring, summer, I put an extra sheet of 50% over to give 75% because our Adelaide summers are pretty hardy on the uh, leaves. So yeah, I'd go uh, 75% over summer, keep the water up to it, of course, as it dries out, uh, water it again. And I'll be doing demonstrations and giving that information uh, during the day down here. I'll probably do three potting demonstrations. But yeah, must make sure you give it enough light. They do like light. If you put up against a shed or a fence and think oh, it's got nice dark green leaves, it won't flower. You need leaves that are about lime green. And around Christmas time through December, go out about half past eight at night, nine o'clock at night, and spray the leaves so you'd get a uh, temperature drop of at least 10 to 12 degrees between day and night temperature. Then you'll get flowers for sure. As you can hear, Trevor is a wonderful font of knowledge on orchids. I can't let you go uh, because I know that you also run a gardening program on community radio. Just tell us where and when. Community radio, that's Tribe FM, based at Belunga, 91.1 FM. Tribe Um, FM, that's a good name. Yeah, the show's on uh, Friday morning from 9 o'clock to uh, midday. It's a three-hour show. And uh, for the last uh, 12 months, I've had a young co-host. Uh, she's only 16. But she's doing this as part of her education. It's turned out to be quite a good little show with the old bloke and the young girl <laughs> <laughs> bantering away. And uh, she's uh, she's picked up the orchid hobby as well. She's grown some orchids at home. So uh, hopefully I'll have her down at the Royal Stage when I do one of my uh, stage performances down on... Uh, at the Royal Show, I hope she'll do one of them. With okay, you. and sort of Trevor Garrett is one of those uh, uh, wonderful personalities that are in the background but a wonderful font of knowledge and does a tremendous amount to promote the, the cause of orchids. Uh, all we need to do is say thank you, Trevor, have a very good show, and Deb will tell us where to go. <laughs> exactly. Trevor, before I let you go, what are the opening hours for the show today? It's open at 10 o'clock, so we're only about 15 minutes away, I would think. Um, so open at 10, it closes at 4 o'clock. Wonderful. Well, Trevor, we'll catch you at the Royal Adelaide Show this year. Fingers crossed. Thanks very much for joining us. All right.
Thank, Thank you. you. So if you'd like to head along now and see some of the beautiful orchids that Trevor's been talking about, uh, you can visit the Orchid Club of South Australia's Winter Show today only at the Enfield Community Centre at 540 Regency Road in Enfield. I have the latest ABC Organic Gardener magazine to give away. If you haven't won anything from us in the last month, then you can call now, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Let's go to Underdown now. Annie, you've got some sweet peas. I have. Look, I'm a first-time grower of sweet peas. I put in seedlings. They've had tremendous growth. But I have got a lot of stuff coming up from the ground, you know, like a lot of sweet pea growth. Do you just keep putting that up on the trellis or do you trim it off or something? You know, like, what's the story? Once you've got enough uh, uh, on the trellis, you've know, got nice, strong stems coming out of the ground and on the trellis, I would say off with their heads. Uh, you'll yep. find that the people that love their sweet peas and uh, try, grow them every year, you'll find that when they germinate, they send up a, a little uh, stem and a lot of little side uh, stems, and you need to sort of chop them back so you've got one decent kind of a stem coming out of the yeah. ground, and then up it goes, and as it grows, you'll get more uh, stems, and so you might have enough just to fill the trellis, and that's uh. important because if you have too many, it becomes crowded and you get lots uh. of leaves shading the flowers. So yeah. uh, keep the, the trellis open uh, and anything that's growing on, along the ground, chop it off because that's pinching some of the energy that should be made to go yep. into producing your flowers. Yeah, and, and, so. and And a, a fortnightly application of a, a liquid organic fertiliser from now on yep. I think will be repaid with value. Would dynamic lifter be any good or not, or better off with the liquid, as you suggested? We're looking at the chicken manure pellets. Well, the thing is, it's got to get into the soil, get broken down by the little microbes that uh, Tim was talking about, and then uh, the materials available to the plant. That's going to be probably six weeks, eight weeks down the track because of the cold weather. That's the big value we're going to talk to Tim about and ran out of time about using the liquids, uh, the liquid organics now. Uh, they really are uh, very, very professional in their application. Uh, Deb, can I just sort of mention um, Anne came in and sort of sort of picked us up and sort of saying traditional gar- uh, tra- traditional gardening, and I think she's spot on. That you can either garden organically or you can garden with chemicals, and I think you know that, 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 that's a, a new phrase that I've learnt. Thank okay. you, Anne. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how we adopt it going forward. Joan is in Port Elliot, and we're round to July is the time to prune our roses. Hi, Joan. Good morning. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I've got two very old iceberg standards that were deadheaded about six to eight weeks ago. Um, now, I usually prune late July and, or early August, um, but they've now got two, I've got two of them. Now they've got hundreds of flowers on the top, have grown in like new shoots with hundreds of flowers. Do I still prune them hard? Have you pruned I, I, it? I usually prune them very hard. Yes, okay. So, and have you pruned them at all this season? or this? No, is, no, no, they've just been deadheaded. Yes. Well, I think you need to sacrifice. Uh, yes. If you leave them there, what's there will continue to grow, but it'll mm. be weaker growth and you'll have smaller flowers. Yes. So if you prune and you're used to pruning pretty hard, um, I think you'll find that that will generate nice, strong new growth. 
and yeah. that's it will be strong enough to have side shoots. And just keep in mind, I don't need to tell you that probably, Joan, but uh, uh, people that are growing roses, you always get roses on the end of a branch, whether it's a strong branch or a a thin branch, uh, you'll get either a big rose or a small rose. And the more branches you have, the more ends of branches you have and the more roses you get. So that's the aim of pruning is to sort of get new growth and lots of branches and you end up with lots of flowers. But in your situation, Joan, yeah, I think you need to sacrifice the colour that's there now, you may put on a little bit of extra nutrition, uh, some organic fertiliser now and some liquid organic, po- or, uh, or a chemical if you want to, uh, in springtime, but uh, you'll find that uh, it's important to uh, put a little bit of oomph into the plant to make up for what you're chopping off. Thanks for the call, Joan, and congratulations to Sue from Venus Bay who won our ABC Organic Gardener magazine. Mike is in Lockleys. You've got a rogue tomato plant, Mike. Yes, good morning, uh, Deb and John. I'll try and be quick. Um, over summer, I had a group of tomatoes, which uh, when I harvested, I pulled most of them out, except for one, which looked uh, like it wanted to live. So uh, as an experiment, I let it go. Um, it's um, now up to chest height. I've just counted. There's 24 tomatoes on there, and um, some of them, are, most of them are the size of uh, tennis balls. Uh, but they've been green for the last three to four weeks, uh, what should I do with them now? I've never had them this uh, this late. Just watch them. Being at Lockleys, I presume you're not going to get wiped out with frost. Uh, no, very rarely have frost here. Right, so enjoy. Because the ground is so cold, they're not going to grow very much at all. But if you leave them there and there's no uh, disease on the leaves and the, the, le- the fruits are looking nice and healthy, just leave them alone and they'll sit there quiescently during July. As we move into August, you'll probably find that the fruits will change from that uh, dark greeny look to a, a translucent look. And once you know they, they start to lose the greenness, uh, they won't redden up, I shouldn't think, because there's not enough sunlight, but they go translucent. Once they're translucent, you can pick them, put them in a, contain- in a cupboard, and they'll colour up themselves. And uh, that way you get to use them. And if you can get colour into them, the more colour you, you've got in them, uh, the more flavour they'll have. You can pick them green and eat them as chutney, but uh, I'd, <laughs> I'd rather eat a, a tomato with a bit of flavour. Well, I was waiting for, to see if they were going to go red, and I thought, well, they better ring in because they may never go red. No. <laughs> uh, but talk, talking about disease, uh, I have noticed on some of the leaves there's a um, like a powdery uh, soot uh, on some of them. I've been cutting them back, but there's a bit more appearing on the outer leaves. All right. Well, watch that because uh, chopping off the leaves is probably not sufficient. We're getting ideal weather for powdery mildew. Uh, it's mild weather, cloudy weather uh, favours uh, the powdery mildew. Suggest that there are wonderful new fungicides out there. Ecofungicide um, and Ecofend are just brilliant. They're new chemicals, uh, but they one of them's organic, one's not. Uh, but it doesn't really matter from a plant's point of view. If you spray your tomatoes uh, or plants with the, that fungicide, it's very, very effective in stopping it in its track. I hope that goes well for you, Mike, and for all of our gardeners this morning. Thank you so much for your calls and lovely texts through. So if the fog lifts, John, and you can actually see what's in your garden, it might end up being a nice day for gardening today. I'm sure the sun will come shining through. Until uh, next week, I'll say good gardening.